Well, I wonder what frustrates you about life in an imperfect world. I'm sure many of you are uh, much more laid back than me, so you sail through life without any frustrations at all. But I get frustrated by things. It's often the small things that are most frustrating, isn't it? I think for me, it's those objects that only really have one function in life, but fail to perform that function. You know, like teapots that don't pour properly. You know, you know the kind, those kind of little silver things you get at cafes. You, know, you, you tilt the teapot towards your cup, you reach that optimum angle of attack when the, the, the precious coppery liquid inside should freely flow into the cup, but it just dribbles down the front of the teapot and all over the table. And you think to yourself, who designed this thing? I mean, you had one job to do. Just design something that gets liquid from A to B. And shoelaces that keep coming undone, they're really frustrating. Um, you know, shoelaces have one really simple goal in life. But somehow I always seem to end up with shoelaces that can only be kept tied using the kind of knots known only to trawlermen and scout leaders. It's really frustrating. And of course there are many trivial frustrations like that. But of course, there are also many more profound and, uh, and deeper frustrations with living life in an imperfect world. I think one of them has to be just the, the absence of real, true justice in the world. As one writer put it, um, justice in this world will only ever be rough justice. I mean, in Britain, we have, uh, we have a justice system that goes back centuries. We have one of the best developed legal systems. We have the right to trial by jury enshrined in, in Magna Carta all those centuries ago. But yet even one of the, the best justice systems in the world can only ever get a rough approximation of real justice. I mean, people, guilty people get off on, on, on technicalities. The rich can afford better lawyers than the poor, so it's tilted in their favour. Sometimes the sentencing just doesn't seem to match the magnitude of the crime. You hear about it on the news and you think, three years for that? And of course, even having trial by jury, trial by 12 of your peers, doesn't guarantee justice. Because, of course, jurors are fallible. They often have to make decisions based on uh, on not a perfect view of the evidence. They're not all-seeing, they're not, not omniscient. And neither are judges and neither are magistrates. So you end up with miscarriages of justice. You have people who are innocent locked up for crimes that they didn't commit. And there are well-known cases of that in the past 30 or 40 years in our country. And I hope you saw, as, uh, as Peter read through this passage, that the, this is a gross miscarriage of justice going on here. But is it just that? Is it just one of history's many miscarriages of justice? Is it just another frustrating example of, of rough justice in an imperfect world? Well, what Luke shows us in this passage is that when it comes to Jesus Christ, in his case, 
this is much more than just a miscarriage of justice. There's something much bigger, there's something much more significant going on here that is vital for us even living 2,000 years later. So let's just remind ourselves of the story and walk through it. You're going to need uh, your Bible in front of you for this. And when we pick up the action in 22 verse 66, Jesus has, has already been arrested during the, the previous night. And he's been held at the house of the high priest. And the next morning he's taken uh, to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is it's the ruling council of the, of the Jewish religious establishment. So it's made up of the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law. And the Sanhedrin demand that Jesus tell them whether or not he is the Messiah. Now the, the Messiah was a promised king. God had promised that this king would come and put right all that was wrong with the world. And this was the character that the Jews were eagerly looking forward to coming. And the Sanhedrin demand to know whether Jesus thinks, Jesus claims he is this Messiah. But Jesus sees through their questions. You see, Jesus already knows that they've already rejected him as the Messiah. So he says to them, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And in fact, he knows, he knows that they really do know he is the Messiah, but they, they refuse to acknowledge it. He says, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But then he says something that really gets the Sanhedrin's attention. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, Son of Man is a, a term that Jesus used to refer to himself throughout the, the Gospel of Luke. And when he says that he will be seated at the right hand of God, that's tantamount to claiming that he is on a level with God. And so the, the Sanhedrin jump in at that point. Are you then the Son of God? Jesus answer, gives a slightly ambiguous answer. He says, you say that I am. But to the Sanhedrin, it's clear enough. This man is claiming to be God's son. And by this point, they've heard enough. In their eyes, that's blasphemy. And that must be punished by death. But the problem for the Jews is that under the Roman occupation of Judea, which they lived, they didn't have the authority to put anybody to death. Only Rome could do that. So they drag Jesus off to the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, the man who could sentence him to death. And the other problem that they've got is that this charge of blasphemy just won't cut any ice with Pilate. You see, the Romans didn't care about internal Jewish religious matters. They never executed anyone for, for blasphemy. But the Sanhedrin think they know which political buttons they need to press in order to get Pilate to give them the decision that they want. So they, they bring distorted and false allegations against him. It's there in 23 verse 2. They began to accuse him saying, we've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. 
See, what they're doing is they're, they know that what Pilate is really interested in is whether anyone is opposing Roman rule. And they're claiming that Jesus is effectively setting himself up as a king in opposition to Caesar. They're effectively implying that Jesus is leading some kind of insurrection against Roman rule. But Pilate finds no evidence of this. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But that doesn't stop the, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They now try to convince Pilate that Jesus isn't just a problem in this small area of Jerusalem. He's spreading his, his revolutionary message across the whole country, starting in t- north in Galilee and spreading all the way down to Judea. Now, when Pilate finds out that, uh, that Jesus is, is from Galilee, he sees an opportunity to palm off responsibility onto somebody else. Because, you see, Herod is in charge of Galilee, and Herod just happens to be in town at the same time. It's always nice to be able to delegate responsibility off onto someone else, isn't it? So, Pilate sends Jesus off to see Herod. And Herod's very excited to see Jesus but not because he wants to find out the truth about him. See, he just wants to see Jesus perform a magic trick for him. He, he just wants to see Jesus perform a miraculous sign. So he, he questions Jesus at length, but he gets no response, not even one word. The Sanhedrin are still there, still hurling their accusations at him. And Herod and his soldiers turn to mocking Jesus and his supposed kingship. They dress him up in a kingly robe uh, and send him back to Pilate. Then Pilate calls a public meeting. He calls together the Sanhedrin and also the, the people. He again declares Jesus to be not guilty. But as a compromise, he'll He'll have Jesus punished and then released. But the people are insistent. They shout out for a convicted murderer, Barabbas, to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate tries again to to release Jesus in, in verse 20. But again, they just keep shouting, crucify him. He tries a third time, but the people just keep shouting and shouting at him. And eventually, Pilate caves in, and he gives the people what they want. He, he releases Barabbas, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. What we have here is a clear miscarriage of justice, isn't it? But I want to focus in on three things from this passage that show that this is more than just a miscarriage of justice. First of all, there's, there's a deep and distinct darkness underlying the events of this passage. See, we, we jumped into this account of the first Easter partway through. Earlier on in chapter 20, 22, Jesus has been arrested. Um, he's been arrested by a crowd, a mob, including the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the officers of the temple armed with swords and clubs. Look back to 22 verse 52. 
Jesus says to them, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you, you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. See, Jesus isn't just saying that they're being cowardly by arresting him under cover of darkness. It's, it's much more than that. There's a moral darkness at work here in how all the different players in this story treat Jesus. I mean, even before Jesus has faced questioning by the Sanhedrin, he's been mocked and beaten by the guards who are supposed to be looking after him. If you look at the verses just before our passage, in um, verse 63 of chapter 22, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. A bit of casual violence to get the ball rolling. And then there's the, the Jewish leaders themselves, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Once Jesus has tacitly acknowledged being the son of God, despite, despite their knowledge of the miracles that he has performed that show that he really is the son of God, healing the sick, raising the dead, Despite that, they set themselves on a malicious pursuit of his execution. I mean, they're the ones who, in human terms, are driving all the action in this passage. They're what they take him to Pilate. They're throwing their, their hypocritical and distorted accusations against him. And when he's taken to Herod, they're there again, vehemently accusing him in 23 verse 10. When he's sent back to Pilate, they're there again, it's like, it's like in a football match where all the players of a team gather around the referee, jostling him to try and get the decision that they want, pressuring him into giving a decision. And that's what they're doing here. They're surrounding Herod and Pilate, pressuring them to give the decision that they want. And in fact, in, in constantly throwing these false accusations, they're supposed to remind us of uh, another famous Bible character, Satan. See, Satan is the accuser. That's what he does. And he's the father of lies. And here, the, the religious leaders of the people, the very ones who, who should have been taking after God, walking in God's ways, are following a, a distinctively satanic path. And they're intent upon hounding, hounding Jesus to death. Even when he's declared innocent, they won't give in. And it's not just any death that they want. They specifically want the most degrading, the most brutal, the most horrendous death, the one that they wouldn't dare even to mention in polite conversation. They want him crucified. See, there's a, a malice in their hounding of him. So much so that by the end of this passage, these respectable religious leaders, no doubt dressed in their, uh, in their holy robes, are screaming at Pilate to have this man crucified. Then as Pilate and Herod, they don't have the same intense hatred of Jesus. 
But, but to them, Jesus' claims to be a king are just ridiculous. He's a joke. They don't respect him. They don't recognize his kingship. He's just a harmless crank in their eyes. They hold him in contempt. In fact, it even appears that they're, they're brought together and have a beautiful reconciliation over a shared mocking disdain of Jesus. And then there are the, the people, the public. They get in on the action from verse 23, verse 13 onwards, and they come out of it no better. Their rejection of Jesus seems utterly self-defeating. They would rather that a dangerous criminal be released back onto the streets of their neighborhood than allow Jesus to live. And they join in the screams to have him crucified. See, it's clear that there's a dark hostility towards Jesus in this passage. This isn't the the, the measured response of people impartially weighing up his claims. There's a, a dark underbelly to their rejection of him. See, this isn't just any miscarriage of justice. What we actually have here is the climax of mankind's dark rebellion against his creator. In fact, more than that, it's not only mankind's rebellion. What we have here is the rebellion of all God's enemies, both seen and unseen, both human and demonic, coming to a head and taking their aim at Jesus. That is what is going on here. Now, we might like to think that our deepest convictions are based upon a considered weighing up of the evidence. But according to the Bible, when it comes to Jesus and his claims to be an eternal king, none of us is unbiased and impartial. There's a dark rebellion against him in our hearts. The Bible calls this sin. We want to be king over our own lives. And so his claims to be a universal king are deeply threatening. They're threat to our self-rule. And so our natural response is often hostile rejection or mocking dismissal. And for Christians here tonight, we shouldn't be surprised when, when our family, when our friends, when our society react to Jesus with antagonism or mocking. I was talking to someone recently who was uh, talking to their non-Christian family about Jesus and suddenly one of them snapped and said, no more. No more preaching. And I'm sure many of you um, who have non-Christian family can identify with that. And nor should we be surprised if our society becomes increasingly um, hostile to, to Jesus and to those who follow him or increasingly dismissive of him. See, it's not that the, the evidence for Jesus has been carefully weighed and found wanting it's not that it's too difficult to grasp. It's because there is in each person a deeper heart problem. There's a hardness of heart and a blindness that can only be overcome by God himself. It's not merely a question of us, of us presenting the gospel in a more persuasive way 
or of having better arguments against objections, vital though those things are. No, there's a, a deeper problem, so deep that only God can solve it. God must perform a miracle. But praise God, he does do that, and he can do that. And we are living testimony of that fact. But the fact that we are utterly dependent on God to miraculously break through the barrier of human rebellion should drive us to our knees in prayer. It's why if, as a church, we are serious about our 2020 vision of seeing a significant gospel impact on our community, we have to commit to praying together. It's difficult to make the case that you're committed to that vision if you're not also committed to regular corporate prayer together. So first of all, in this passage, there's a, a distinct darkness. And secondly, there's, there's an innocent sufferer. See, one of the, the big points that Luke emphasizes in this passage is that Jesus is not guilty He's innocent of all the charges laid against him. In fact, three times in this passage, Pilate declares him to be not guilty. In 23 verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Later on in 23 verse 13, I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And then later on, why, what crime has this man committed? Verse 22, I found him in him no grounds for the death penalty. Even Herod can't find any guilt in him. So he, he sends him back to Pilate. And yet, this officially innocent man ends up being crucified. It's astounding, isn't it? I mean, in every other miscarriage of justice... The common factor is that there is a guilty verdict passed against the person before they're punished. Now, it may later turn out that that verdict was wrong because the jury had a, a vital new piece of evidence comes to light. Or it might be that that guilty verdict was, was a stitch-up imposed by some oppressive regime. But there's always a guilty verdict passed. Yet here we have a man being punished after officially being declared not guilty. I mean, imagine you're, you're up in Kingston Crown Court or you're up at the Old Bailey at the moment that a verdict is being delivered. The judge turns to the jury. He says, have you reached a verdict? Yes. What is your verdict? Not guilty. Defendant, this court finds you not guilty of all charges. I hereby sentence you to life imprisonment. Take him down. I mean, it would be bizarre, wouldn't it? There's clearly something more going on here. And Jesus' own behavior in this passage seems very odd as well, doesn't it? I mean, he doesn't respond to any of the charges that they throw against him. He doesn't defend himself He's completely silent before Herod. He doesn't even utter a word. There's clearly something deeper going on here. See, what Luke is doing in this passage is that he's proving that Jesus really is this promised king. He really is 
God's Messiah. You see, centuries before this trial, God had promised that he would send a king from the line of David who would deal with the awful consequences of our rebellion against him. And this king would save his people from, from their greatest enemies, from sin and death. But he wouldn't do it in the normal way that kings save their people from their enemies. It wouldn't be through, uh, through military power or skill. No, this true king would rescue his people by suffering for them. See, this promised king would, would be God's suffering servant, a perfectly righteous man suffering for his people's rebellion. Some 600 years before this event, God, through the prophet Isaiah, described this suffering servant who was to come. This is what he said. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. See, in this passage in Luke, what we have is Jesus, God's true suffering servant, going silently to his death, being cut off from the land of the living for the rebellion of men and women in order to save them See, when Jesus dies on the cross, he does not die a guilty man. He's not dying as some punishment for an armed rebellion against Rome. No, he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Luke is showing us that this was truly God's suffering servant. Jesus was truly the promised Messiah, suffering on behalf of his people. This is no mis- mere miscarriage of justice. What we have here is nothing less than the climax of God's gracious plan. A plan that goes back even before the creation of the world to rescue sinful people like you and me from the consequences of our rebellion against him. So we've seen it in this passage there's a, there's a distinct darkness and there's also an innocent sufferer. Finally, what I want you to see in this passage that there is that there is a scandalous exchange. Despite Jesus being publicly proclaimed as innocent, the leaders and the people shout louder and louder until Pilate caves in and gives them what they want. He releases Barabbas and he sends off Jesus to be crucified. And it's difficult to escape the sheer craziness of the situation. I mean, the Jewish leaders had come before Pilate and claimed that Jesus should be executed because he's a threat to Rome, because he's leading an insurrection against Rome. And yet here we have Jesus declared innocent of those charges, being sent off for execution, and a man who really is a threat to Rome, who really has been leading an insurrection against Roman rule, released out onto the streets released back into the community. 
Luke is a great writer and he, he brilliantly sums up the craziness of this situation in, in the last verse of our, of our passage. Verse 25. This is what he says. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, the one that they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. He released the dangerous criminal and sent Jesus off to be crucified. Can you imagine the headlines if our government were to release a convicted terrorist killer back onto the streets of London? Can you imagine if, imagine if a cabal of establishment figures um, gang up on the Home Secretary and pressure her into releasing a convicted terrorist just so they could have a completely innocent person who they want out of the way thrown into maximum security? Can you imagine if a journalist got hold of that story? Can you imagine the public reaction to that? We would be outraged. This is scandalous. This is disgusting. You did what? You released a terrorist back onto the streets? You put an innocent man in jail? That's scandalous. And make no mistake, what we have here is a a scandalous injustice. The innocent Jesus should be crucified and guilty Barabbas released is appalling. It's an outrage. It's scandalous. And yet, if you're a Christian here tonight, that is your story. See, you, you are in this story. You are Barabbas, and I am Barabbas. We may not have committed murder like Barabbas had, but we're all guilty of an insurrection far worse than Barabbas. You see, Barabbas rebelled against oppressive Roman rule, but we have rebelled against the loving, caring rule of our Father God. See, we pursued an insurrection against him, his loving rule, from our earliest years. We blanked him. We didn't refuse to give him a thought. We said, in effect, I will not have him rule over me. I must be king over my own life. And the only just reward for that is to be separated from our loving God to an eternal life where there are none of the good things that come from God's caring hand. There's no joy. There's no peace, no friendship, no companionship, and no escape. Yet at the heart of the gospel is the God who, because he loves us, sent his own beloved son, his righteous, innocent son, to take our place in a great exchange of grace so that we, the guilty ones, might go free. On the cross, as we'll think about more over this Easter period, Jesus Christ experienced that separation from God that we deserve so that we might not have to. He dealt there with the punishment for our rebellion that we rightly stand in line to receive so that we might be set free to become children of God.
Now, if you're a believer here tonight, do you have a right sense of the weightiness of God's grace towards you? See, we can, we can have a wrong idea about grace. We can think it's a, a nice, warm, fuzzy thing. It's basically God deciding that he's going to be nice to you despite your failings. But that's actually a feeble caricature of the real thing. See, grace is costly. Grace is shocking. Grace is the innocent son of God being led off to be crucified so that you and I, who are guilty, might be released. See, the, Christian, this verse, is, this scandalous exchange is the strapline to your life in Christ. When all is said and done, the reason that you find yourself a child of the living God, as summed up in these words, he released the man who had been thrown into prison and surrendered Jesus to their will. Or to make it more personal, he released you, guilty of insurrection against God, and he sent off his son to be crucified. See, if you're, if you're here tonight and you're, you're not a Christian, or people think you're a Christian because you can talk the talk, but you know deep down that you haven't submitted to God's rule, then I, I need to be straight with you. You are in desperate, desperate danger. Because you've rebelled against an eternal God. The only just punishment is, is an eternal punishment. But the great news is that this gracious exchange is still open for you tonight. God offers you tonight this exchange. His innocent son in your place so that you can go free. I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you want to find out more, come and talk to me after the service. So the trials of Jesus A miscarriage of justice? Certainly. But much, much more than that. This was the climax of a dark world, uh, the world in dark rebellion against its king. But at the same time, this was also the realization of God's gracious plan to save sinful men and women through the suffering of his innocent son. And in this scandalous exchange, of guilty Barabbas, innocent Jesus, we see the depths of God's astonishing love and grace for us.